is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing our favorite concept albums. So what is a concept album anyway? Music critics and fans have been debating this for decades, but for this podcast, we're going with a pretty broad definition. By our reckoning, a concept album is a collection of recorded music that has been created around a centrally unifying force, such as a continuing narrative, an omnipresent theme, or a strongly consistent tone, all of which creates a singular expression in which the whole is not always easily separated from its constituent parts. Now, by this definition, a soundtrack or a tribute album or a collection of holiday songs might all qualify as concept albums, but they don't really feel like what we're talking about here. To some extent, a concept album is a kind of a thing where you know it when you hear it. A concept album is meant to be listened to from start to finish in a single sitting. A concept album is meant to deliver a musical experience, unlike a simple collection of songs that might not have much to do with each other aside from being recorded by the same artists or appearing on the same album. A concept album is designed to be such from the beginning. They generally don't happen accidentally. Now, concept albums have been around for a long time. A sampling of early notable examples might include Dust Bowl Ballads by Woody Guthrie, Black, Brown, and Beige by Duke Ellington, In the Wee Small Hours by Frank Sinatra, Songs of a Love Affair by Gene Shepard, Milestones by Miles Davis, Giant Steps by John Coltrane, and Wild is Love by Nat King Cole, all from 1940 to 1960. But the concept album really took off within pop and rock music in the late 1960s and throughout the 1970s, often incorporating experimental sound, long-form composition, artistic alter egos, and sustained narrative. Some worthy examples here might include Freak Out by Mothers of Invention, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by The Beatles, Tommy by The Who, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, David Bowie, Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd, Tales from Topographic Oceans by Yes, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway by Genesis, Mothership Connection, Parliament, 2112 by Rush, Hotel California by The Eagles, Joe's Garage by Frank Zappa, and Turn of a Friendly Card by Alan Parsons Project. Whether people were burned out by prog rock epics or simply distracted by the singles-driven rise of MTV, concept albums seemed to tail off a bit throughout the 1980s. And while they never quite regained the frequency in earlier years, there's still no shortage of notable efforts to consider. We've got Kill Where I Was Here by Styx, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son by Iron Maiden, Operation Mindcrime by Queensryche, Erotica by Madonna, Letters Never Sent, Carly Simon, The Downward Spiral, Nine Inch Nails. Apologies for sandwiching Carly Simon between Madonna and Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> <laughs> Antichrist Superstar, Marilyn Manson. Miseducation of Lauren Hill by Whole Songs for the Death by Queens of the Stone Age. The Rising by Bruce Springsteen, his post 9-11 concept album. American Idiot by Green Day. And then later, uh, you know, entries such as American Gangster by Jay-Z, The Fame, Lady Gaga, The Suburbs, Arcade Fire, Good Kid, Mad City, Kedrick Lamar. Volsenor by Bjork, and uh, perhaps one of the most notable recent concept albums is Lemonade by Beyonce. These lists are by no means exhaustive, but they showcase just how varied the concept album really is and how, regardless of their genre or sound, they're unified by demanding more of their listener than a traditional album of radio-friendly singles. Concept albums aren't always meant to be necessarily easy listens, but they always reward the effort to appreciate what it is that they're expressing. So let's get into some of our favorites. With me today is stoner rock enthusiast, Chris Crenshaw. Howdy, folks. Cheese metal convert, Tom Hespos. I forgot the lyrics! And Billy Joel apologist, Joe Pace. I've seen the lights go out on Broadway. <laughs> Excellent. Everyone, welcome. 
Chris, we're going to start off with you. Uh, we're going to go in kind of roughly chronological order tonight in terms of when the albums we're going to talk about came out. And you're kind of starting us off with, frankly, the one that we really should be starting us off with. So, Chris, I'm going to hand the mic over to you. Talk us through the album you selected for your moment of the truth when it comes to, to concept albums. And give us a little bit about, you know, why that album matters, why it matters to you. Let, let me first give you a little bit of my musical history my first exposure to concept albums came at like age five or six i was a kiss fan as a kid and and destroyer was released in 1976 uh it was the first record i ever bought with my own money it's like baby's first concept album it, it it's not very <laughs> effective as such but it begins with uh detroit rock city and that song which is a rock classic in my opinion ends in a car wreck in which the, the radio is still playing at, at the scene of this car wreck is, is what we are meant to think there's other like weird temporal elements to it all there, there's radio broadcasts on the album that set it all it's not a great concept album but as early as five or six i was already in with the idea that an album could be a thing itself mm -hmm. i started to recognize concept albums and, and appreciate them uh you know for what they were in my teenage years and and when i was a freshman in college and got introduced to pink floyd i was not a stoner uh, in my early years but i had heard the radio songs you know people were you know, radio hits but not their albums and i was a freshman in college lived on a hall with bill here uh, the guy across the hall from me from west virginia introduced me to dark side at christmas of uh, freshman year i bought a, a good set of headphones sony headphones and listened to dark side on those and it was just like fireworks going off in my head experiencing an album like that presented experience and 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 told a story and and had you know a theme that was both uh, lyrical and musical was you know really revelatory for me that was honestly a big moment in mm -hmm. the development of my musical taste but honestly this despite how much i love dark side of the moon it, it is my favorite album ever not to mention uh, Wish You Were Here and Animals. And so good. Maybe even Metal. They're all so all concept yeah. albums in, in their own ways. Yeah. But, you know, the concept album, in my opinion, reaches its apotheosis in The Wall, uh, released in yes. uh, 81, correct? Um, uh, 79. 79. 79. 79. 81 was uh, their following record. The, the record that broke Pink Floyd up uh, uh, was, was released a couple of years later. It was essentially a follow-up to The Wall that waters was still insisting had to be a concept album about him it broke up the band yeah <laughs> <laughs> and justly so honestly it's like dude we don't need an album over the wall b-sides come on man you had two no, full albums <laughs> look I, I will go on record i think final cut is a really really good album but it's it's not the wall i i, I very much agree with you i think the final cut's a deeply underrated floyd album it's fantastic it's just not the wall and it's, it's always going to, and, and it's always going to be the album that broke up pink floyd so it, it just yeah. it's indicted so the the wall though it tells a recognizable psychological story you know from, from the the point of view of a protagonist that well let's call him pink the story is complete enough and, and like real enough that they could adapt it to a film with some animation and remarkably little trouble yeah, it's pretty much this, straight. This album is yeah. can be made straight into a movie, and that's yeah, that's like hitting the the concept album jackpot. You know, they got all yeah. bars. Yeah, but Pink Floyd, are, of course, are the masters of the concept album. I can't imagine anybody disputing that. 
pretty much any Pink Floyd album could be a concept album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah to, to some I extent. do agree with you too, Chris. That like, you know, as much as Dark Side is definitely one of my favorite albums too, but like, the Wall really just elevates the whole format yeah. of the concept album. I, I the whole what makes a concept album good, I think, is yeah. personified in the Wall. Absolutely, the musical themes just appear in song after song after song, and yeah. and parts have you know, or songs have different parts. You know, different versions of the same song appearing. Yeah. You know, in in yeah. one case three different places on, on the on the album i don't know it's it's like it's written as a stage play so what is, what is the story of the wall for those who haven't heard it it's the story of alienation essentially uh it, it's a, the story of a man who blames his mother and his absent father lost in world war ii for his problems he sort of degenerates he sort of he decompensates and goes insane yeah <laughs> is that the only way i can you know, put it I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But the music's widely varied, can be enormously theatrical, or it can be hard assed rock. And the way it all weaves together is yeah, I don't I don't think that there's another concept album that does it quite as completely. The Wall is one of those albums where even if you would not agree it's the greatest concept album ever made, one would have to concede it is probably the most popular concept ever recorded. There are very few others that could really contend. That, that I mean, that just beat it out for sales, for accessibility, for having been listened to. I mean, I think even though Dark Side was on the Billboard chart like forever, The Wall, just when people think of concept album, the wall is kind of the, the one of the first choices for many people out there. It's really kind of the, the standard bearer for concept albums in general, even though concept albums are far and wide, much more diverse than what the wall has to offer. I love the wall. Um, that, that was actually the first, I think, Pink Floyd album I ever listened to, you know, even before all the yeah. other stuff, this um, girl in my science class, Maureen Rooney, stole my binder one day and spent the entire class period doing the wall logo on my binder and so i was like stuck with this binder you. that had like the cool she like, liked you boy. exactly <laughs> right dude man and i was like maureen likes tom very very cool oh, you know thing to do oh, but like, yeah right i had i'd never listened to pink floyd before this is probably like ninth or yeah. tenth grade like i hadn't listened yeah. to it before and i figured if i was gonna walk around with this thing on my binder i'd better listen to this album <laughs> <laughs> remember Thanks. doing it and being like there is just yeah. something like special behind yeah. this. Yeah. I don't think I even understood what concept albums were at that yeah. point, but that almost introduced me, I think, to, to the concept of the concept album. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I could tell you right now in nine or 10th grade, if a girl took my binder to draw on it and give it back to me, I would propose to her on the spot. I mean, that <laughs> <laughs> right, then. <laughs> right, right then and there, like clearly. Okay. Boyfriend at the time. Even. If, if, I, if, if you think now. I'm worth, if you think I'm worth that kind of effort at 10th grade, then by all means, <laughs> you're yeah. in. All no. in. A, a guy yeah. did that for me once. I still, would have proposed. I, I still would have proposed. I still would have proposed. No, man. He, he did later come out. <laughs> no, no, you know. But, but now, Joe, this is all kind of relatively new to you. If, if I understand right, you're kind of coming into Pink Floyd, just, you know, really doing research for this particular episode, right? So, I mean, unless I'm wrong, I think you're kind of the same place with The Wall as you were, like, with Jaws. Like, you hadn't heard it before we got ready for this episode. So, I'd love to get your thoughts on this as a relative. Because, I mean, for me and Tom and Chris – Something like The Wall, it's been part of our musical listening history for, for so many, so many years as part of the background at this point. But it's relatively new to you, and I'd love to get a sense of, of what you took from it. I come to this being a touch younger, and so the, the Pink Floyd 
was not part of my coming of age. I came of age later in the late 80s, early 90s, and and Pink Floyd at the time was was not part of that. Honestly, Joe, that, that to, to be clear, that that's true of all of us. Like you know, they, they were recording. Yeah. All the stuff we're talking about was recorded when we were kids, and we weren't listening to it at the time. Yeah, yeah, I didn't yes. know until late in high school. I, I, I understand entirely, but but it's also a question of the the musical context. And by the late '80s, the musical context had shifted. It was hair bands. It was a lot of Metallica. It was a lot of ACDC. It was a yeah. lot of Bon Jovi. It was a lot of that kind of stuff. And and then by the time you know 1991, when I'm a junior in high school, we're talking. Nirvana and Pearl Jam, and then there's a seismic shift in what music, yeah. what popular music is, right? Yeah, yeah. So by the time I'm able to go out and spend my own money on albums, I'm not going out and buying Pink Floyd. I'm not yeah. going out and wait, buying. Wait, Death spending Leopard. your own money on albums? Have you never heard of the CBS uh, CD club? <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah, the notion that, if was, that yeah. I still probably owe them money for the one penny per album or whatever. <laughs> you want to talk about a business model time. completely undone by the legal knowledge that you're actually not. <laughs> You actually so, don't have to live up by contracts you sign under a certain age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bobo Nuttier, whoever my alter ego who signed up for Columbia House might yeah, have possibly it, been in 1989. Yeah. I, I can't speak <laughs> to that. When I listened to what, when we started doing the background for, for tonight's episode, I, um, I listened to The Wall and I listened to Pink Floyd and I, and I listened to it. I, I, I swallowed it whole, right? And to me, it was this, this, this wall of sound. It was this late 70s, very symphonic, very uh, tonal experience. It was very much intended to be long form storytelling, right? Yeah. It was not about a three and a half minute exercise in radio spin. It was very much about, you're gonna sit down and listen to this and it's gonna be 50 minutes and yeah. like buckle up get into it, spend some time with it. It was not a, this is not flash fiction. This is a novelization of sound. Yeah. If you and, have anything to smoke, feel free. And yeah. I didn't do yeah. that, but I did listen to it and I found it very ambient. I found it very um, experiential in the sense of like, I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna do other things while I listen and and just kind of let it wash over me. And it's like, yeah. it's like sitting on the beach and experiencing the the, the action of the waves and the sound of the, the surf and and here I am. And it, it didn't change my life the way, you know, people listening earlier, earlier might've been. We're, we're too old to have our lives changed by music. <laughs> my life doesn't oh, change that easily. Disagree. Disagree. <laughs> disagree, disagree, disagree. But your point is taken, move on. I'm utterly open <laughs> to my life changing. I, yeah. I, that's fine. But honestly, I, I, I found it, I found the instrumentation and the, and the um, symphonic nature of it to be extraordinarily good it was I mean, yeah. there's obviously tons and tons and tons of talent behind what's happening and and i enjoyed it but would i listen to it again would it, is this yeah. something where i would like play it over and over again as opposed to what i play because honestly like the absence of lyrics and the yeah. the um you can you can accept that something is, is is well done, and also accept that it just doesn't speak to you on a certain level, you know. But to me, Bill, I'm talking about it from the standpoint of like, okay, when something um, it, it's, I found it hard to access the storytelling aspect of it as opposed to like, if I'm going to sit and listen to Brahms, or I'm going to sit and listen yeah. to Mozart and just yeah. have sound be part of my life, mm. I filed it into that part of the cabinet mm -hmm. of like, if I just want to play sound and kind of go away and have this be happening. 
as opposed to accessing it in a, yeah. in a very active sense. That's kind of where it went for me. I will say that when I first came across Pink Floyd and came across the wall in particular, I was in my late teens. I was really starting to appreciate just the what it means to tell a story and the art and craft of storytelling itself. And I was kind of fascinated with it in all its forms. And I was kind of amazed at how you could do it through music. There was a certain fascination with the form that carried me, apart from just me appreciating the music on its face. You know, Joe, I, I think I know what you're talking about. For me, Pink Floyd remains... If I'm on an airplane, which is now I listen to most of my music on airplanes. I want to chill. I want to maybe nap. Pink Floyd is up there in my choices. You could do worse. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that maybe uh, God's Beach of Black Emperor. Mm, yeah. Stoner Rock. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. What'd you say, Tom? I said Mogwai. Yeah. Mogwai. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I get where you're but saying. That's where I get to that ambient, that ambient nature. Yeah. It's music not as like frontal cortex experience but it's more lizard brain right like i'm just yeah happening around yeah part of it is you had to really try to be getting the second base at a laser light show at the planetarium when you were like <laughs> that's yeah. part of it but yeah. i'm gonna take your advice i'm playing this the next time i'm gonna try to move move with my wife i'm gonna use this because i think she's younger than me i don't think she's inoculated against it you gotta you make sure you keep uh quarters as a backup <laughs> we've had this conversation about Portis had him. Maybe we will again. This is not why I designed this podcast for, but I'm helping to stop it. So <laughs> if you're 17 and you're listening, long game. Long game. Exactly. Look up Portis head. 1996. So, so, <laughs> yes. So Chris, my big question to you for the wall is, is there any particular part of the wall, a particular song or a particular aspect of it that really jumps out to you as like, like your moment of truth within the wall? It is... Without a doubt, I think my least favorite song on the wall, oh, um, The Trial, which is, oh, yeah. it, it's, it's not even a song exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a stage production, you know? It, it is. It, yeah. No, it, yeah. You can, you can, you can totally see it being on a stage. It's so, they, they are, the they're, you know, the, the judge is yeah. calling out witnesses yeah. like from off stage yeah. to come and denounce him or defend him. And yeah. it's campy. It reminds me of Queen a little bit in that sense. It, it, yep. It's theatrical and ridiculous. It's orchestrated. And yeah. yet yeah. it's friggin' awesome. Yeah. It's, it's you know, well. it, it is telling a story and it's doing it in a way that nothing else had. Yeah. And, and, and really, to me, hasn't since until maybe we get to Tom's moment of truth. When you're in the trial, that's where like, you know, Roger Waters, basically he, he stopped trying to be metaphorical or allegorical in any sense. He's like, we're just going to do this right on the nose. You know, just, 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 just for anybody in the cheap seat who didn't get what we're talking about, we're going to make sure you walk away from this knowing what we're coming into. And, and it, yeah. just, it gets, it gets very literal at that point. And, you know, and, and that's sort of spelling it out for you, you know, I, I was doing that song in the shower this morning. You <laughs> you're in it now <laughs> i hope they throw away the key <laughs> no no it's it's so good it's so good it's like waters gets kind of manic singing it but it's, it's great stuff oh, yeah. so. uh tom did you have a particular favorite track from the wall you know i don't like i it's more of like a totality thing for me like I, yeah before we got on we were talking about how you know tracks just run into one another yeah you know, which is a contrast to like dark side of the moon where i definitely have favorite tracks i just i like the totality of the wall the song comfortably numb oh. uh which is just such an extraordinary great song it sort of talks about the notion where like pink has become this rock star he's fallen this this 
dual rabbit hole of rock and roll excess and severe mental instability and just self-isolation. He's just being under like heavy medication so he can go and perform, right? That's part of the story. But the song just on its own musical merits is just a fantastic tune. And the solo at the end, I think oh. is David Gilmore's finest hour as a guitarist. Oh, it yeah. is just, that is it is a, just that, cannot disagree. That, that solo that's a top 10 guitar solo of like all time. Absolutely. Holy moly, by the powers, it's good. It is so fantastic. Even if you dislike the rest of the album, you got to listen to that song. It's so fantastic and it's so good. And I just adore it and I always will. So, right. So let's move on to the next one. Joe, we're going to move on to you. This one comes a couple years later. It's as different from The Wall as Night and Day, but it's a great album and it, it's definitely a concept album. And it, it's interesting because it doesn't always make people's lists of like, what are like, concept albums that easily come to mind i was more familiar with the singles that came off of it than as an album itself but when i listened to it as an album i'm like wow this thing is very much the whole is greater than some of its parts like i really appreciated it as an album as i was listening to it i'm so glad you picked it so can you walk us through your choice of concept album can you get us into you know why you like it so much and what's your moment of truth from it yeah my, my concept album comes from 1982 uh, when i was seven um, which is billy joel's nylon curtain it's very much a, a, a pain to futility. And the, the entirety of the album is a, a storytelling of, of America at a pivot point from greatness into struggle. And we see that on a, on a lot of different fronts. We see it in the, in the steel foundries that are, are beginning to, to lay people off. We see it in the, the losing rear guard actions of the early 70s in, in, in Vietnam. And the sexual politics of post-feminist America. And, mm. and so this, the, this album is very much a struggle against a machine that's inexorably grinding us into this powder. And it's, it's a, a deconstruction of post-manufacturing Reaganomics. It's this non-binary world of post-sexual revolution and be, being adrift, right? And untethered and questing for some clarity in the suburban world. And, and, and so much of, of Billy Joel's 1970s stuff, he does a lot of neighborhood related stuff, whether it's Long Island or, or New York in the neighborhoods. This is really his expansion of his message of, uh, or not message is wrong, message isn't right, but it, it is, is his storytelling of the individual experience in a larger world. And he takes it beyond yeah. the borders that he, he usually would tell those stories about, takes it beyond the, the suburban landscape and into the world. And it's very much a story of, oh man, what do I do now? Yeah. which from an individual standpoint marries up to what America is dealing with in the early 1980s of like what happens next, yeah. right? Like we're very much a superpower and yet there's a, a moral ambiguity to that. And, and, and I think it captures that really well in this album. And this, this album, I mean, it opens up, I mean, you're, you're talking about an album that, that opens with the, the first strains are the, the foundries of Allentown, right? I mean, that, that's the first sounds of this album aren't even music. It is, it's steel on steel. Yeah. People are gonna, are gonna feel differently in different ways about Billy Joel. People are gonna, people are gonna feel like schmaltz and cheese and whatever, and fine, that's fine. You can take that and you can do whatever you want with it. You can pound sand, I don't care. I, the guy is one of the great storytellers of American. He is. He absolutely is. I know about that. And every, every day of the week and twice on Sundays. That's true. And so because some of his stuff has been taken and repurposed as elevator music, I think he gets a, a, a he gets a, a bum deal. You know what? Wait but, a minute. Hang on. Nirvana has been repurposed as elevator music. Right? It's, <laughs> I, don't, listen, don't, it just Rolling Stones. 
the Rolling Stones are selling Joel. me Mazdas. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, don't put it on him. It's okay. It's okay. It's a, you don't have to be so defensive about Billy Joel. He's a he's a legend for a reason. He really is. Oh, he made a car commercial, man. You know. Yeah, right. <laughs> the guys, the guys, earliest manager screwed him, and and so he had to make money. That's how these things go. But like Allentown has, and you guys are from that neck of the woods. You guys are from suburban Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and so I'm New England guy. You guys will come to this from a different experience than I yeah. will. So, like, we could have that conversation. But but to me, Allentown is all about like, hey, we were promised X and then X never happened. And, you know, yeah. like we were told work hard, get it done. And all sorts of cool stuff were happening. But then wait a minute, the factory is shut down and you got sent to Vietnam and holy crap, what's next? It's funny because it is now 40 years old. And yet that concept is as pregnant today as it was then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Allentown is um is is, is very much a, a song about uh, being adrift, and you get that that is the that is the ongoing thematic structure to this entire album yeah. because you go through Laura where he doesn't know how to react to another like his relationship with another with a woman pressure which I have a story to tell about that, but Goodnight Saigon there is not a better anti war Vietnam era song as a postscript than Goodnight Saigon. I, I don't care what anybody says. Besides war. Well what is it good for? Absolutely, absolutely nothing, <laughs> apparently. But but Goodnight Saigon, Billy didn't go, but he talked to his buddies who went, and that's yeah. that was the praxis for for Goodnight Saigon. And the great thing about this album is it goes out of pressure and then all of a sudden you're like, what's going on? Is my is my tape not working? Is the record not working? Because there's yeah. a long stretch of almost like silence and then the, the sound of the choppers comes out and you're like, what is this? What is this song? And it's very simple. Anyway, as you go on through, it scrolls through some what sound like love songs, but are actually a lot of confusion. Yeah. In, yeah. in through the very end, which is Scandinavian Skies, which is... Billy Joel's attempt to channel Paul McCartney into where's the orchestra. Most of the album is to some extent. I mean, oh, oh he's as influenced by the Beatles and he, he's admitted that. He said, yeah, oh, yeah, he's it's, it's absolutely clear. Yeah. And, 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 and so there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. No, <laughs> who was it? The closing coda, where's the orchestra, which is yeah. speaks to me very deeply because it's, I thought I was supposed to do great things and be somebody and, and whoops. Yeah, that that didn't happen, and you listen to it, and, and, it, and it's sort of sad. And then there are strains of it, and the strains of where the and this is where it comes to being a concept album. In the the orchestration of where's the orchestra, you hear Allentown. Yeah, it's it's like a reprise. There is, there's absolutely a reprise of it of reprise. Where's right. the orchestra? This was supposed to be my great experience, and that never happened. Something something went off the rails somewhere. Yeah. And, and to me, nothing captures post-1980 America better than what happened. These songs are all familiar to me. This was the first time I can ever remember sitting down listening to the Nylon Curtain. Same, um, same. My impression was that this was a set of characters, not like a guy, but you seem to think it's a guy. That, that's really interesting. Think, You're more likely to be right than I am. Chris, I'm with you. I never listened to this album you know, before this show. I, I was very familiar with a lot of the songs independently, but not as a, as a collective. And as I listened to it, I hear what Joe's saying. I never got the sense necessarily that it's just all one person per se. 
Uh, I I got the sense it could be almost anybody. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and I got the, I got the sense that this was this is like the Baby Boomers' great protest album after they all grew up and forgot how to make protest music. Well, you know, I, 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 I was looking at this as like a big life cycle. I mean, you have Alan, so Allentown. I have to just pause for a second and jump in here. Born and raised Easton, Pennsylvania, part of the Allentown Bethlehem Easton collective known as the Lehigh Valley. Okay, so Bethlehem was ten miles from my house. Everybody knew Bethlehem Steel. It was a titan in the area. When steel started to go into decline in the late '70s and throughout much of the '80s, and finally just closed down by the time I was in college, it had basically closed. That was a hugely traumatic event for for the Lehigh Valley, and and the Lehigh Valley's politics have have changed irrevocably. I mean, it's, it. it there was a, a deep level of blue collar resentment against them, whoever them are, who made this thing happen. They never, they didn't understand the economics that drove the closure of the plant. They just knew somebody's responsible for it. It's not me. And it's probably that guy over there who isn't like me for some kind of reason. And it, it really it awoke something. Well, there's always something deeply ugly in that area, um, in that part of Pennsylvania, but it definitely awoke it by it, with the vengeance. And, and Allentown is a weird song because it speaks to that. But when I was growing up, Every time you heard it on the radio, it was like, yeah, man, we're getting name checked by Billy Joel. It wasn't like this like dirge <laughs> about the death of the economic heart of the Lehigh Valley. It was like, check it out, man. We're on the radio again. So it just I had such a weird relationship with that song, as great as it is. I I am I had this this environmental thing that pulls me in a different direction when I hear it. And it's not what Billy Joel meant, but that's what I get from it. I had a special relationship with that song too, because um, you know, being from Long Island and having taken 15 years of piano lessons as a kid you get the billy joel's greatest hits you know sheet music book it's kind of standard issue congratulations you're now a man <laughs> and good night saigon takes five minutes to master oh, piano it's, man. It's, 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 good night saigon pressure <laughs> Allentown, all three of those yeah. songs are in the greatest hits collection of course when you practice those songs you see the lyrics every single time you play it yeah. So like before I listened to the song on the radio before, you know, I, I saw it as even like a popular song in and of its own right. I was learning it on piano and learning the lyrics. And I'm like, these are kind of dark lyrics, even at that age, you know, when, when I was practicing yeah. it, I was like, this is, this is kind of dark. Like these people were promised something that didn't ever arrive. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, it's just, it, I think too, with, you know, being a Long Islander, um, you know, cause he's gone on to do other things like, you know, it's, you know, yeah. down Easter Alexa and stuff about the fishermen, yeah. you know, a yeah. different album, but still it's, it's, you know, it's kind of Billy Joel's thing. And, uh, you know, but like nowhere, I, I, I think I would put it up there with like born in the USA in terms of, yeah, like, yeah, we were mm. promised, uh, yeah. If we put our heads down and did the hard work yeah. and you know, yeah. we never got there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that, Anybody who's ever said, okay, Boomer, needs to listen to this album to at least get some inkling of where all that anger from the Boomers comes from. Because as a generation, I mean, they were promised X, they got Y. They were never given a particularly good explanation for how it got there. And now, all, you know, now there's so much anger, you know. And I know I'm, I'm speaking with a very, very broad generationalist brush, and, and you know, it, it, it's unfair. But, you know, but I mean, I just, I kept thinking about that when I listened to this. I'm like, you, you've got like all these aspects of like, you know, like Allentown's about going to work. Laura is about dealing with, you know, relationships and codependency. Pressure is about the resentment of growing up. Goodnight Saigon is Vietnam. She's right on time is, you know, falling in love, having a relationship. But then a room, a room of our own is about relationships always come to, they all come to an end. 
uh, surprises when people show, show their true colors and the new sexual politics that Joe talks about. Scandinavian skies is when people turn to self-medication and where's the orchestra is the realization that it's not really all about you, even though you thought it was going to be. And it's like all of that comes together in a very powerful package of, you know, if, if you live a life and you and you can relate to every single one of those songs, you've got a pretty solid bedrock of, of just general baseline resentment against the entire damn system, you know, because... Well, Hard to argue with that. I, I will say that when I was um, a junior in college, this we're going back to 1996 now, I was running for president of the student body, which, you know, listen, not a big deal, not real life, but it was a big deal at the time. And we, <laughs> it, was, it was a big thing at, at, at UNH. And we were waiting to hear, it was election night and we're waiting to hear the results. And we're listening to music at some party. Yeah. And um, the girl I was dating at the time kept putting on pressure by Billy Joel to upset the girl that was my vice presidential candidate. And, and she kept getting upset and she kept playing and, and my, you know, and <laughs> kept playing pressure and Becky kept getting upset. And it only made me love the song. That I can't blame her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Seriously. Yeah, I, I, look, Joe, um, I That's know some this ace is a, psyops right there. <laughs> this, is a, this is a podcast about the things we love, but I actively dislike the song pressure that it hurts my head. <laughs> but which means it's effective. I, I think I think it might be it might mean to. to be yeah, 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 yeah. What I love about pressure I is that uh, they still to this day, you know, whatever this is, you know, 25, 30 years later, they still play it when there's a call to the bullpen in major league baseball games. They'll still play it in a close late game. <laughs> and and if if you can write a song that has that much durability, yeah. then God love you. Every white guy of a certain age who grew up east of the Mississippi has Billy Joel's greatest hits or, or has had it at some point in his life. Yeah. They either but bought it or they bootlegged it. Hell yeah, absolutely. It is undeniable that Billy Joel is one of the greatest songwriters that uh, America has ever produced. I, I don't, I don't love the guy, but I cannot deny it. He's fantastic. You'd be hard pressed to find anybody out there who couldn't find at least one of his songs you're going to like, right? It's just yeah. impossible. It's impossible to dislike his entire catalog. Impossible. Scientists have gone through this. They've proven it. It's just, it's, <laughs> it can't be done. Okay. They, they, they just can't be done. So you're all being very kind. <laughs> so anyway, all right. So we're going to move on to the next section here and we're going to move on to my moment of truth, which is actually kind of a twofer and it's kind of a long, complicated story. And it will get heavy. I apologize in advance. And it references a moment in my life that was pretty dark. So it's um, it involves uh, a suicide of somebody very close to me. So for those of you who have experienced suicide, if you're a suicide survivor, or if you're in a bad place, and, and this might trigger you, please, you know, be mindful and just go ahead and skip ahead, you know, 15, 20 minutes and, and, and you know, you won't be hit by this. But the albums I picked are two albums. They're not really intentionally connected, but they're connected in my mind. They both would fall into the whole post-rock category. And post-rock music is as difficult to define as a concept album is to define, honestly. I mean, there's people are really going at it, you know, as like, what exactly is post-rock? And you might broadly categorize it as music that uses rock instrumentation, but doesn't use traditional rock song structure or orchestration, right? It's, it's, it can be very experimental. Um, a lot of post-rock sounds like it's kind of like classical music structure, but with rock. Also known as stoner rock. Like, I, like this all descends from Pink Floyd. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's definitely got a big thing on that. And of these, there are, there are two standout albums that are kind of a weird paired set for me. One is an album called F-Sharp, A-Sharp, Infinity, by Godspeed You, Black Emperor. Uh, came out in 1997 and 1998. The vinyl came out in 97, the CD came out in 98. And the other one is from 2003, 
by a band called Explosions in the Sky. And the album is called Earth is Not a Cold Dead Place. And for me, these albums come together because they bookend a, a deeply personal transformative moment in my, in my life. F sharp, A sharp, Infinity has been described by some as kind of like the soundtrack to the apocalypse. It's a very dark album. I mean, very, very almost pitch black in, in, it, in its tone. It doesn't conjure the notion of a cataclysmic Armageddon. It's not like, you know, there's no asteroid impact or great war. It's just this vivid image of a world fallen into entropy and decay, kind of like a soft apocalypse. Uh, this sickening darkness in all things has somehow emerged and bubbled up from everywhere while we weren't paying attention. And suddenly you just sort of realize that everything around you is ruined, you know, and, and it and, makes and, it scary, but not unbeautiful. Yes. There's a dark beauty to it all. There absolutely is. And there are notions where it's like, there's certain passages of music where you're like, you know, even, you know, if somebody was born into this scenario, they could still find something to be happy about. Like it's a very nuanced piece of the old order. The last thing to tumble and fall into pieces is our ignorance that it was going to happen. Right. But for me, this album was a soundtrack to kind of a, like a personal apocalypse I suffered, which was in 2009, my brother Tom, to whom I was very close, he took his life on New Year's Day. And so 2009 is like this, it's this year in my life. Like sometimes when you, when you like, when you cut down a tree, you look at the, the tree rings, the growth rings, you can see like there's a growth ring that looks all messed up. That's the year the tree like had no water, right? So like 2009 is like that kind of growth ring for me. It's this year where Everything was different. That was the year where I was in survival mode the entire year. Like what, this is like, how do I pull back the pieces of Bill and put them back together again so I can actually keep living now that this thing has happened, right? It was really, really traumatic thing for me. And, 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 and F sharp, A sharp, Infinity, this album, it sounded like I felt. And I, I just can't put it any other way. It sounded like I felt. It could be very beautiful, but I had a lot of emotions. I listened to it and I realized it wasn't always a, an easy listen, but it was always an exceptional one. And I made me feel like I felt less alone in my grief when I listened to this album, because I felt like if somebody can make music like this, somebody else could be feeling the way I'm feeling. And I didn't feel like I was completely adrift somewhere. And that actually mattered. And that actually helped me. It helped me get through my suffering. It helped me process what had happened with my brother and why it happened and, and all those things. It was bookended by the Earth is Not a Cold Dead Place, which is the album where, where my moment of truth comes from. The Earth is Not a Cold Dead Place is sort of the tonal opposite of F-sharp, A-sharp, Infinity. It's a hugely emotive work. Frankly, it's got way more sound than a simple four-piece band should be putting out, honestly. I mean, it's just, it's just it's a simple instrumentation. Whereas, like, Godspeed, You Black Emperor, I think they had 10 people in the band when they did that album. Explosions in the Sky had four, and they still put out this massive volume of sound yeah but godspeed you black emperor is doing like minimalist recording and explosion of the sky is just laying it on oh yeah for sure beautifully like <laughs> yeah. that is not a criticism you know you know but the music of explosion in the sky and of the earth is not a cold dead place this is like their breakout album you know a lot of the songs they begin on kind of a quiet lonely almost spare note almost somber in a way sometimes almost ominous the guitar is always leading, but it always the songs they build and they build and they give way to these soaring dynamics and these sweeping crescendos and these transcendent climaxes. And every song is this kind of musical catharsis. As I listen to this album, the guy who introduced me to Godspeed knew I was in a bad place. Also introduced me to this one as well. And I owe him a debt. There's a friend of mine named Morgan O'Rourke. And Morgan, if you're listening, thank you, man, because this, this really helped me out. But listening to the earth is not a cold, dead place. There's a weird optimism to it and a defiance in the face of deep hurt and pain and adversity. And it was like my musical journey back into the light after I spent a year 
you know, pondering the loss of my brother and the way in which we lost him. And so if, if F sharp, A sharp infinity sounded like how I felt during my grieving and recovery year, then the earth is not a cold dead place sounded like how I was determined to feel once again, even knowing what kind of sadness there must be and is always yet to come in life. You know, and, and, and that was a big part of it for me. The album is considered a, a concept album, but it's very much unlike The Wall, which is like a narrative concept album in many ways. This is a purely tonal concept album. It's instrumental. It's just tone upon tone upon tone. The band said this, is, this album was their attempt at writing love songs. I get that when I listen to this. There's only like five songs on the album. I mean, these are all kind of long songs. The first song is First Breath After Coma. That song moves me to tears when I listen to it. It's just, it's kind of has, to me, it evokes the, the exultant love for life after you've come close to losing yourself or after you've witnessed it being lost and you suddenly appreciate how precious and how fragile it can be. And you have that newfound love affair of everything. You know, your coffee tastes better. The sun shines brighter because, you know, something, something bad almost happened. And that's followed by the only moment we were alone, which is a quieter piece, but one that it's punctuated by these bursts of energy that to me kind of grasp this notion of when you are first aware that you're in love with something and you have these, these passionate swells of energy for it. And it can be, if you're in love with a thing that motivates you, if you have romantic love, platonic love of, of any sort, it's, it's that initial sense of I'm in love with something and how great that feels and how energizing and how life affirming that feels. And then there's the middle of the album, which is the darkest track, which is called Six Days at the Bottom of the Ocean. And it's inspired by the year 2000 disaster that befell the Russian nuclear submarine, the Kursk, which sunk in the Barents Sea. Basically, the sailors down there were doomed underwater and couldn't be rescued. And some people thought they were down there for days. Some people thought they were for hours. But the notion is that the world knew that there were these Russian sailors deep underwater caught off from any hope of escape and they were not going to make it. It's very, very heavy. And at one point, the music almost kind of, it almost kind of suggests like beating against the hull to, to love life so much that even then you're not going to give up on it. And you just, you, know, you just imagine like you want to tell the people you love one last time that, you know, that they know it before you're gone. And that's followed by a song called Memorial, which is a, a quiet moment of reflection that turns to brightness and energy. For me, it kind of evokes the way loss can bring us together and remind us of the fierceness of the love we had for those who are no longer with us. And then how that can remind you of the love you have for those you're still with. At my brother's funeral, you know, my friends and I, we got together again and we laughed harder than we'd ever laughed before. And part of it is that, you know, you laugh because you must not cry. Part of it is that we, we it, without one of us there, we, we had to confront how much we loved those who were there, you know, and, and that was a special moment. And then the last song, is your hand in mine, which is this almost, it's so bright and so, so exultant. It's almost a defiant embrace of the future, no matter what loss lies behind it. And no matter what loss is going to come, you're like, F it. We're going to just hand in hand. I love you. You love me. I love this thing. We're just going to do this. And what's going to happen is what's going to happen. And that's okay. We can still love things. It's okay to still love things. And uh, this album deeply moves me. And uh my moment would have come from first breath after coma because I would listen to it when I was in a bad place. And I was like, oh God, tears would flow. But I got to tell you, um, my moment comes from something that happened to me today, this day, as I was listening to this album again for this podcast. And, you know, I'm listening to your hand in mine and it's getting that big swell the moment I'm thinking this is what it's about. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting all lacrimose uh, as, I, as I do. I have on my arm a tattoo of a, of a D20. Basically, it's, uh, you know, I'm a role player. That's what I am. That's what I do. I run for a living. Role playing means a great deal to me. And that tattoo is on my arm for a bunch of different reasons, not the least of which was because 
I learned to role play with my brother. He and I did it forever. And this is something that kind of I turned to to live on afterward. And a, a guy who's a fan of mine attempted suicide and included me in a public suicide letter and reached out to me. And by just sheer happenstance, I happened to be the first guy who saw it. So I was able to alert the authorities and they found him and brought him back before he, before he died. And I was like, okay, you know, that <laughs> this stuff matters. So I, th- I think about that kind of thing when I look at the tattoo, but it's, it's other things as well and about how, you know, life moves on. And, you know, we run this ongoing role-playing game. Uh, Tom and Chris are in it. We play this game called Starfinder. We had played D&D for some years. And, and our campaign, guys, has been going on for, what, like five years now? I mean, it's like a long time. Yeah, five or six. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's, it's been, and we meet every week. It's a big thing we do. But just recently, Chris's son, Eli, just joined the group. He's 15 years old. You know, at one point, my son, Connor, around the same time, was with our group. And Eli had kind of grown up a little bit hearing about his dad and his group and wanted to play with us. It's so much fun having him with us. Like, it just for so many reasons, he's just really awesome to play with. I see his father in him. Oh, I'm like Ramos. <laughs> you know, I written him this note we'd played last night. I had a really good session. And I'm listening to this. And I'm listening to, to your hand in mine. And the swell is coming up where it's like all these feelings about, you know, you've, you've loved, you've lost, you can love again. It's okay. If you open your heart to it, you will find new things to love and new reasons to be, to be happy, to be alive. And as that song is hitting its moment and that thing, this message comes through from Eli. It's like, Mr. Coffin, thank you from the bottom of my heart for including me in the group. I immediately I pulled my shirt sleeve up and I put my hand on this tattoo and I felt it. I just felt it. It was like a bolt of lightning in my heart. And I will never forget that moment as long as I shall live. And uh, nothing else could possibly count as my moment of truth on this one. That's that. Me either, Bill. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. <laughs> I have to say, Bill, when I was, I was listening to this, um, and I had, never, I had never listened to it before this, it was, it was not quite what I expected at all. When, when, when Bill was like, this is my moment of truth. I was expecting some serious hardcore speed thrash, you know, bang my head against the wall. It was shortlisted. I, it was shortlisted. Yeah. I, I wasn't living sure. from Anthrax was in there. So. <laughs> I wasn't sure what I was going to experience. I was all ready to, to you know, have a... a it's a, got a explosions in the name. I was all... <laughs> yeah, yeah, explosions. I was all ready for the bucket of sheep intestines next to me if need be. And, um, but, but I was listening to this and it was... Shakespeare like I mean this was the human condition right and and all I could think about was from Hamlet's soliloquy was all I could you know what dreams may come mm-hmm. that kept recurring to me right like to sleep perchance to dream and in that sleep of death what dreams may come and we've shuffled off this mortal coil and that, that was where I was the entire time and it was for me I didn't distinguish between any of the tracks it, it was a, it was an entirety of experience same yeah. right and yeah. and and the whole time I was listening to it, I just kind of went away. I didn't do it. I started out, I was doing other stuff. You know how you do when you listen to mm-hmm. yeah. instrumental music and I'm, I'm writing or I'm, I'm checking emails and, and I stopped and I like literally like I closed all the other windows and I, I, I closed my eyes and I just went away for a while. You experience what you're going to experience based on this. And it is, it is evocative. It is purely emotive. Yes, yes. You experience yes. It, it, it on your own terms. It asks yeah. you to respond. Yes. Yeah. yeah. My cool record label cousin Al introduced me to Explosions in the Sky and a lot of these sort of like post rock bands like Mogwai. Like they're never going to be my favorite music, but I see people having special relationships with that kind of music because I think it just allows you to sort of be alone with your own thoughts for a bit. And yeah. 
you know, not have exactly too much to interpret, but you know, just have the ability to kind of to sit there and like yeah. let it sort of wash over you. Thank you, Bill, for sharing like such an amazing personal story. Because you know, clearly, obviously, in the wake of something that that terrible a loss, I mean, clearly, you you had to do some of that and had to find some of those pieces to bring Bill back together again. And, uh, you know, to have that, you know, kind of a personal relationship with that kind of music is, it's, it's not my thing, but you know what, it's, it's definitely something that helps heal and helps people get by. And, you know, I think my, my cousin, you know, once told me, he thought if we could achieve world peace, if more people listen to post-rock like that, especially Mogwai, but uh, probably, I, probably I right. Yeah. Him, you know? yeah. 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 I'm down. Stoner rock. <laughs> it's not stoner it's like, rock it is though it, this is all stoner rock man it no, is. I, I gotta tell you come on chris i gotta tell you it's like going to a museum and wandering into the uh the modern art impressionist section and it is not here's the picture yeah. you like my picture it is here's color and movement and emotion on a canvas you're gonna have to bring yourself to yeah. it and it's going That's to hit you in, are all about well, you know, I don't, I've never, I've never smoked a, a joint in my life and I can still experience this music or that art. Oh, no, 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 says, no, no. Stoner Rock, I, I don't, I don't take to imply that, that you have to smoke. I, 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 I get where you're coming from, but to me it is, here is art on its own terms and you're going to interact with it in a way that is entirely up to you. And it is going to bring something different in you. We talked about Billy Joel a minute ago where the images are pretty clear. And we all yeah. experience it in the same space. Whereas this is, you're going to take this into your own life and it's going to be different for you than it is for anybody else. And that's what's great about it. Joe, I love that museum analogy. I never thought about it like that before. But I, that, I think for me, for me, that totally lands. When I go through a museum and I wander, I'm just there with my thoughts and I'm just pulling things in. I'm not really guided. It's in that same, that same emotional continent, for sure. Bill, I, I had not listened to this before the prep for this episode. And, oh, I loved it. Loved it. Every minute of it. Uh, my experience was much like Joe's in that I, I could not tell you one track from another because yeah. I mean, not only is the, the tone in the same family, at least, you know, there are light motifs that I think are reused throughout, you know, th their particular instrumentation is really distinctive. That music is as emotive and as, as, as storytelling as music yeah. can be. To Joe's point, I have a very unique emotional relationship with this music, but I think that even if I didn't have this great tragedy I was coming through at the time I found this music, I think that had I found this album under different emotional circumstances, I think I still would have established a strong emotional connection to the music. It just may have been a different kind of emotional connection, but the nature of this this music is like some sort of emotional template and it's there for you to attach to in some way. And I think everybody's going to attach to it in a different way. And I think that's the real wizardry of this music. That's the real, the real magic in it. And I just, I just love it for that. We're going to move on to Tom's uh, moment of truth here. This is the, the last album in terms of the most recent one that came out. This is an album. I knew a couple of the tracks from it. I knew this album better by, cause I listened to a lot of mashup music. And I listened to a lot of mashups that incorporate bits from this album, not knowing where the originals came from, right? When I listened to this album in its entirety at Tom's behest, I always blew my doors off. I was like, oh man, like I knew I liked the sound of this band. I had never really given them a listen. And I, hearing this album, I was so glad because I really, really enjoyed it. So 
Tom, why don't you talk us through the album you picked, why you picked it, what it means to you, and what's your moment of truth from this particular album? Because this, this album also goes into some pretty heavy territory. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's funny that I'm going last because, you know, when we thought that we were going to do an episode on concept albums, if we were doing it in chronological order, I would have thought me, you know, I would have been the one to pick one in an early concept album. But <laughs> yeah, me yeah. too. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like 72 or something. However, yeah, here comes um, Tom with it. Yeah, right. Yeah. You, you guys know the kind of music that I'm, I'm, you know, most a fan of is that, you know, hard rock, you know, guitar driven stuff. The early 2000s were really sort of a crappy time for that music, uh, you know, in my estimation anyway. I was always thinking, like, I haven't heard something that's come out in a long time that I can listen, you know, beginning to end through the whole album and find it listenable. I was really, you know, as a person who's always really enjoyed music and had a special attachment to music throughout my life, that put me in kind of a bad place at that time, too. I was going through a period where basically like I was falling out of love with, you know, living in New York, you know, I was starting a company and having, you know, dismal economic failures. My finances were a mess. Everything was a mess. I moved out of New York back out to Long Island, sort of in defeat and did a lot of, you know, commuting thereafter. So I had to, you know, get back and forth. Even though I didn't live in New York anymore, I still had to uh, work there. And, you know, I was on the train a lot and, the way I got into this band was just happenstance. I bought, you know, a PlayStation Portable to play. Like, wow, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Game. Great device. And I got this game called Need for Speed, which was a racing game. And <laughs> it had all this great, like, you know, music in the background. And one of these, like, I kept playing this one race over and over and over again because it had a track from this band on it. And I was like, who is this band? I love it. And once I figured out who they were, I went back, you know, and started going through their whole discography and, you know, loved everything I heard. The band was My Chemical Romance. And the album that I picked for, you know, my moment of truth with respect to concept albums is The Black Parade. And I mean, that album, like, you know, I, I went back and I listened to the, you know, the album that, you know, I, I had heard on the video game, but then like the Black Parade came out, by the way, along with like a bunch of other concept albums, like you know, I had all of a sudden, like all this great music to listen to that were all concept albums and were all listenable to, you know, beginning to end. So, you know, things that's when I discovered like Coheed and Cambria, which had some great concept albums. May, uh, the Everglow, I would put on my top 10 of... Uh, so good. I, I, listen, I listened to that last night. It's so good. Uh, I'm looking forward to listening to that one. It's, and, it's uh, delightful. The Jack's Mannequin record, you know, everything in transit. Like these things all sort Dude. of came out around the same time, or at least I got exposed to them <laughs> so at around good. that same yeah. time. But like the Black Parade in particular just stuck out to me because it proved to me that you could make that kind of theatrical you know rock opera kind of music again and have it still be very very fresh like yeah. i was really into that album i would listen to it beginning yeah. to end every day on the train it was fantastic and it captured you know a lot of the angst i was feeling my younger friends were like oh dude you're into an emo record you know yeah, join the crowd but uh <laughs> you know, I, I never sort of took it that way to me it was always just yeah. like a guitar driven yeah, uh, you know, rock album that I heard a lot of Queen in. I heard a yeah. lot of Pink Floyd present. A lot of Bowie. 
Without a bow, yeah. Like, yeah. It's, no, it's, it, no, there's definite there. nods to all those three. They, they, they definitely, yeah, they've, they've done their homework. Look, you know, the concept itself is is really cool. Like, yeah. you know, the record starts out with, you know, this beep, beep, beep of the, you know, the heart monitor. Yeah. And it goes right into this guy, you know, the patient who is dying. And the whole record is basically track after track of him, like, you know, seeing flashbacks of his life. I don't think I realized that until probably four or five listens in. Uh, that it was like a really, you know, a concept album. But uh, like once that hit me and I started reading up on it a little bit on the internet, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, wow, th- th- this is great. Yeah. I-, I would say, you know, the-, the moment of truth for me that in terms of a track on that was Welcome to the Black Parade. I mean, first off, you know, as a guy who took 15 years of classical piano as a kid, Anything that's rock music that has piano in it, like, I'm just like, <laughs> yes, we're finally getting, you know, like, they're letting us hang out with the guitarists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's that aspect of it. But, you know, like, the, the, the emotion that goes into that record, the, you know, the angst, the, the everything, like, I, I hadn't allowed myself to buy that in a record in a very long time. And yeah. I totally bought it. Like I was like, yeah. Gerard Way, I, you know, I don't know who you are, but like, I'm now your biggest fan. And yeah. I bought into everything that band did on that record. And I just thought it was, it was a 10 from, from start to finish. Yeah. Welcome to the Black Parade. It's just, it's just an epic, epic song. I mean, it covers so much territory in like under six minutes. It's, it's just amazing. That song soars and it just takes no prisoners. And it's just, it's just fantastic. Within the meta narrative of this patient, this guy's got, well, he's dying from cancer, I guess, is a story. And he's got two weeks to live. And so it's like, he's just sort of settling his emotional accounts in two weeks. A lot of the different songs in this strike me as like the different phases of grief or like when you get really bad news, the whole like, there's the shock, there's the defiance, there's the bargaining. A lot of them seem to kind of draw upon this different emotional states as you're trying yeah. to accept a, a very tough reality. And this one is just sort of the, the defiance part of it. Like, you know, it's going to happen. And you're like, fine, bring it on. Let's just, let's do this. So I this all in. And the chorus of, you know, we'll carry on, we'll carry on. Holy cow, man. I, I hear this. I will shout this one of the rafters. I don't want to use the term anthem too loosely, but I mean, this is like, it has that feel to it. Like you can, you can imagine a whole stadium just belting it out long, just shaking their fists at the Reaper, you know, and it's, it's that kind of feel. And I, I love it. I love Anthems it. are my thing in rock and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> it's an exercise in contrast too. Cause you know, you have that whole, like it starts out with that, you know, just that one, you know, piano line playing. Yeah. When those drums kick in and the guitars come in playing, oh. you're like, yes, it is on. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this. Yeah. This yeah. is this is a band Tom that like you, I, I think I had been exposed to through video games mostly. I I had never listened to them un- until this podcast. That is a phenomenal album. It's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. When I listened to this, I like made the choice not to seek out lyrics. I was just listening. Some of the lyrics do hit home, but like, you know, just the way they're sung, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's that grit of, you know, the, the you can hear the angst in his voice yeah. when he's talking. Yeah. When a lot of this yeah. stuff is coming out, you're, you know, your hate and misery will kill us all. Like, that's yeah. a tough, you know, like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Even if you just sang blah, 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 like, you would get it, you know? Like, yeah, you know, it's like, I'm, okay. They, they call them emos for a reason. <laughs> Well, like some of that I was listening to, I was like, it's, it's like, it's like the water boy with Adam. There's a lot of shame and rage going on here. Like, they're, they're, you know, honestly, yeah. like, and I'm feeling that and I'm like, whoa, there's, 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 this is like pain. 
like there's pain yeah. here, right? And it's it's like um, when you scream out loud, they do this primal scream therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. That that yeah. was the kind of the gist that I got from it too. Was like this is just like let it out. It's okay. We're yeah. all gonna be agonizing together. And uh, okay, I get. Well, it. you know, one of the things that I liked about this, and, and you know, Tom had said, you know, there's a, there's a study in contrast in this album is that it would go full bore and something, then it would switch up real quick and it would kind of throw you off and keep you like I kind of felt off balance the entire album. Well, yeah, that's that's how I would feel if I just got the news I had two weeks left to live. I wouldn't be in a steady state the entire time. I'd be like, you know drunken sailor in a crow's nest right i just feel just all kind of discombobulated yeah i i, I think that there's a good deal of that you know sort of you know the patient raging like i i think i mentioned to you know at least a couple of you guys that there's like a track on this album that i have a very difficult time listening to cancer is the the, the track yeah and you know it, it touches on something you just mentioned bill it's just you know like my my mom you know is, is a cancer survivor she's lived through you know several of bad scares you know one that came in high school one that came in college you know but the one that came in high school you know she was very much deliberately not wanting me to that's the first time I felt yeah. that my mom didn't want me around partially because yeah. she was trying to protect me from what was going on with her yeah also because you know she didn't want me to see her that way Mm -hmm. And there is very much of that in that song and it bleeds into some of the other songs, making some of the other songs a little bit difficult to listen to. Yeah. But, you know, like it definitely reminds me of that, like that raw emotion and the way that he sort of like played the lyrics in that song it just gets me every time. Yeah. It makes it like a very difficult thing to listen to. But like, yeah. you know, I appreciate it as a part of an album that, you know, I almost always do want to listen to beginning to end, yeah. uh, you know, and that it's something that can move me in, in that way. Uh, even if it's, you know, making me experience negative emotions, mm -hmm. Hey, you know, like it, it's taking me somewhere and, yeah. you know, to have that album at this, uh, specifically at that time come out, like when I was really needing something and needing to feel like, you know, music could be that good again. Yeah. You know, I, I, I love it for that reason. <laughs> yeah. And, and what better reason to love it. So before we wrap up a final thought, Depending on what articles you read, the fate of the album as a concept itself has changed considerably over the last two decades or so. Uh, the rise of the iPod and music sold as singles led a lot of listeners to reject albums for playlists, which they did, and in large numbers. But interestingly, as streaming music rose to challenge the notion of owning music at all, owning instead access to it stored on somebody else's computer, it seemed to have brought with it a renewed interest in listening to music by album. To that end, We'd like to draw your attention to the concept of deep listening, uh, something that folks used to do a lot more back when a stereo system was a form of entertainment unto itself and not necessarily integrated into other tech or merely a provider of background noise. The idea with deep listening is to put something on and listen to it exclusively. No phone to distract you, no surfing the web, no reading, nothing. You just sit back, close your eyes, and enjoy the music with your full attention. Maybe have the lyrics at hand, but otherwise experience the music in isolation. Concept albums are especially good for this, but really any music you deem worthy is a good choice. Take three hours, do it on a Saturday or a Sunday, go through three albums. It'll, it'll, it'll sink in. It'll hit different. Feel free really, to dance. That's totally permissible. Totally permissible. Absolutely. But, you know, we live at a time when music is everywhere. It's easier to discover more good music by artists you haven't heard of before than in any other time in history. And yet, 
our attention economy so effectively divides our attentiveness into such tiny little fragments that the music we listen to rarely occupies our full attention. And that's kind of a shame because we're not just shortchanging the artists who spend so much time in all this, we're shortchanging ourselves by allowing only a peripheral enjoyment of something that can fill our heart, mind, and spirit if only we let it. Music is a special and powerful kind of magic. So make time to enjoy its many splendors properly. It deserves it, and you do too. This has been Moments of Truth. On behalf of myself, Tom, Chris, and Joe, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com. Outstanding. Chris Crenshaw, sound check, please. You wanted the best. You got the best. It's Chris Crenshaw checking in. <laughs> what the heck? That's so going to get isolated. And it's, I was going to go my little special uh, library with the shut the up pace, like <laughs> little, little, little person specific sound files. <laughs> it's all good.